Welcome to a special episode of the Retail Exchange Podcast in association with World Retail Congress. Brought to you by Visual Thinking and Style Psychology. We have this narrative where we've created as an industry where we've got these people who are millennials who are going off and having green juices and going to find themselves and traveling around. But the reality is that they're less well-off financially and their future is looking less certain and less uh, financially secure than that of previous generations. So I don't think you can judge things by age or by gender, you know. I think it's more attitudinal and I think that's the way that, that retailers have to think in terms of how they look after their staff and colleagues and also how they think about servicing their customers. That's what retail is really about. We are everywhere. We are impacting on people's lives whether we want it or not. So let's take an opportunity and responsibility for that and let's maybe create a slightly better world. Welcome to this special podcast looking at Retail 2030. I'm your guest host, Ian McGarrigal, Chair of the World Retail Congress. This episode from the Retail Exchange podcast series looks at the issue of societal trends in the years to come and, more specifically, consumers, the real driving force of the changes we're seeing in retail. I'm delighted to introduce and have with me today Julie Oxbury, co-founder and managing director of Household, Peter Marion, managing editor of WGSN Insight, and Kate Nightingale, founder of Style Psychology. Julie, Peter, Kate, welcome to you all. So really to kick us off in thinking about consumers and bringing us back to today, to uh, 2019, there's no doubt that so much focus is around millennials and uh, increasingly around Gen Z consumers. Um, Really interested to see and get your views on how those generations will evolve to our end point of 2030 for our discussion. Thinking about retailers, how... Well, actually, do you think retailers today uh, are really taking on board the needs and wants of both those generations? Kate? So, for me, there's always a very simple way of looking at uh, generations, but also individuals. As if we start looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, which basically goes from physiological through to safety, through belonging, through ego, self-esteem needs, to self-actualization, and uh, later on, last Uh, added uh, level of uh, self-transcendence, which is the only level which really takes care of giving back, whether that's to uh, society, other people, or impact. Um, And when we look at generations, when we look at human beings, we all naturally grow on uh, on this pyramid. And then everything that's happening around us, all the circumstances, are also kind of creating some lacks in those various levels. Doesn't matter whether we stopped at ego needs, like for example, majority of Eastern Europe and Asia is, or whether we grew to our self-transcendence needs, uh, which is majority of Europe uh, where we are at. And especially if we start looking at millennials, they roughly at self-actualization level, and then Gen Z is usually already naturally through what they've been provided as children at the self-transcendence level. However, what has been happening for the last few years, uh, we're clearly seeing big lacks, uh, very deep psychological lacks in terms of belonging, relationships, ability to even have uh, social contacts and be able to even have conversations uh, that are a little bit deeper and relationships that are a little bit deeper. Hence, we are seeing, obviously, the rise of experience, the rise of community, and all of those kind of words and needs from the customers that we have been keep hearing in retail. So, Peter, do you think, as I say, retailers are picking up on on those uh, real changes, given that most Retail businesses, any business, is run by an older generation. Yes, I mean, I think that to extend on Kate's point about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think what we're seeing is it's a really interesting time with that sort of pyramid, which is where, you know, we are looking at that self-transcendence, that top of that pyramid where we're looking for retailers to give us those experiential and, and increasingly more towards a, economies of meaning and, and a sense of 
something more in life and we're looking to businesses to service that. But at the same time, people are feeling increasingly uncomfortable about the stuff at the bottom level of that pyramid. They don't feel, particularly millennials, you know, we have this narrative where we've created as an industry where we've got these people who are millennials who are going off and having green juices and going to find themselves and travelling around. But the reality is that they're less well-off financially and they're, they're uh, sort of future is looking less certain and less uh, financially secure than that of previous generations. So, you know, we need to start thinking as retailers about, you know, achieving that top level of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but then also servicing the bottom part of it. And I think that, you know, there are some examples of retailers that are doing a very good job of, of doing those sorts of things. But I think increasingly it's going to be down to retailers to do more, which is going to be around services, uh, sort of community benefit, and also sort of like that sort of more meaning-led economy as well. Which retailers would you highlight that uh, are um, doing it well? Well, it's a tricky one because, like, I think there are some good examples, but necessarily, like, you know, the financial growth is not necessarily sort of matching up with that at the moment. So I think Lululemon's shift in towards um, experiential economies because they're really, I mean, if we start to think about um, access as the new sort of divine, uh, sort of definer of experience, and you know, we've been talking about uh, experiential economies as kind of like an added benefit from a product sales perspective. But then if we start to think into the future where we've got this consumer, we've got people who don't want to buy things anymore because of the, the climate crisis and everything else that's happening. And so, you know, you start to think about experiential economies. Well, that's going to become a part, a revenue driver, as opposed to something that's an added benefit or a marketing benefit. And Lululemon's a really good example of that because they're now opening, you know, a studio in Chicago, which has, uh, you pay for, to do exercise classes and they do events in London, which I've been to, which is their sort of Lululemon sweat events. And then they've got a, a marathon that they host in Canada as well. So it's really about that kind of experiential thing becoming access, becoming part of the business proposition as opposed to being, you know, a marketing side effect. So, yeah. Julia's, those two generations get older and we're yeah. looking at uh, yeah. a little bit over 10 years' time, yes. but uh, do generations change as, as we get older and sort of life takes over, so well, to speak? Uh, yeah. Or how do you see the differences that we've identified and Kate's talked about yeah, for both I mean, of those? I, I think that, you know, if you're going to create brand experiences, so something that really feels meaningful, then you've obviously it's got to be something that makes a difference to people's lives in whatever way that is. And, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about at Household are, the, are five forces that are shaping people's lives. And I think that transcends whether you're a millennial or Gen Z or, you know, an old fogey like me. But you would, and these are time, identity, tech, dependence on tech, betterment and trust. And I think when you think about those simple five things, actually that takes you into a world of possibility as well as a world of pain. But if retailers don't start to think about that and, and dial it up and down, then, you know, it's going nowhere. So yeah. I think those five forces actually apply across the age groups. Yes, okay. yeah. Still to come. It, it's an interesting kind of... Uh, tension that's playing out, which is that they do like to, to purchase, they do expect a very seamless seamless retail experience, but then they're also going to be going into these other spaces that we haven't really fully figured out as retail businesses how we're going to operate in them. There's something about that's happening now about an escape from reality, if you like, and, and obviously that then becomes reality. So this whole virtual world thing is, is an interesting... Um, uh, beginning, I think, which is going to affect Alpha's behaviour. I thought that leads on to a, a really interesting point about looking at retail businesses. I mean, are they reflecting in their own structures and the people they're starting to bring into the business uh, and, and listening to them uh, mm. because uh, change has to happen um, um, you know, you can't, I think we heard this year at the World Retail Congress, uh, Neil Montgomery said it's really important yeah. to be customer-centric, but equally if you don't have your customers at the heart of your business, uh, yeah. i.e. working in the business, you're, yeah. you know, you're lost, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, how big a challenge do you see that? Uh, yeah, I think that becomes um, more possible, actually, as retailers change. So, if, you know, the more that you have uh, retail, physical retail experiences where there isn't stock in stores, for example... That allows staff to be more focused on service, mm. hosting, and, and, you know, sort of a, a more empathetic relationship. 
And I think all of those things, the, the operational side of retail answers the needs of customers and, and also enhances them in different ways, mm. if that answers that question. Yeah. Kate? I'm seeing this two kind of um, main points and shifts over here. So coming back to your point, Peter, is... Um, we used to be in retail very much product-based businesses. We started slowly moving into service-based businesses, yet we're still not actually charging for those services well enough, like an experience or extra alterations or anything along these lines. But what's happening at the moment with humanity and the increase of loneliness, mental health issues, and so on, that means that those businesses are slowly going to have to start to move to community-based businesses. Mm. And that also means actually engaging the employees, uh, making sure that those employees are co-creating and collaborating yes. on solutions rather than just being told what to do. But mm. that also, I'm very happy and very honoured to also be a lecturer and not because I wanted to stay at the university, but because I have been working in an industry. And the ability for universities to bring people that have been doing something for years to actually teach students um, on what is the real application of things, not just cool theories. And those are the people that are coming into the industry. But then the people that are already in the industry, what they then need to do is become a little bit more humble and listen. Simple yeah. as that. Yeah. So come back to this issue of millennials in the workforce and retail workforces um, in a short period of time. I'm not sure when it is, but it's just one or two years' time. I think millennials will be the majority in the work uh, in the workplace. Yeah. So how do you envisage workplaces will have to change, and you know, career needs and wants are clearly quite different for millennials and uh, previous generations. Not and, can retail, and can retail respond uh, to that, which is a very uh, has been a very uh, command and control structure? Peter? I mean, I think that the retail sector actually, in some respects, is quite good for the mega narratives that's, that are around millennials. If you start to think about a desire for being freelance, being in control of your time, you know, that sort of shift work narrative that, you know, a lot of retail sort of sales assistant roles have. I mean, obviously, the, the problem is that a lot of that sort of stuff potentially could be under threat uh, due to automation in the longer term. I think actually it is a positive thing. I think, you know, I've been out to see some of our clients recently and some of the stuff that they're sort of talking and worrying about is, you know, how do we manage things like anxiety among our teams and, like, how do we create resilient cultures and all of that sort of stuff around, um, you know, building teams that are resilient and strong and flexible and meet those sorts of needs for flexible working, you know, that that's the sort of stuff that millennials will want. But then at the same time, they also want, you know, uh, and it's, again, it comes back to that thing about being financially insecure. They want also the basic thing that their parents want and I think that this is not spoken enough about which is that they want job security they want the ability to buy a house they want you know the ability to have families as well because if you start to think about millennials the oldest are 38 so they're not young people anymore they're people like me you know and I'm an adult now and you know that's I think that the, the problem with a lot of the narratives around millennials is that they're just kind of bucketed as young people but they're not you know they're, they're approaching middle age and uh, you know so that they're, they're expecting sort of businesses and employers that are, I know it's terrifying <laughs> that's a terrifying thought um, but millennials are starting to approach middle age and so you know you want businesses that are going to be, you know, and employers that are going to be servicing all those needs of the average middle-aged person, which is around, you know, career flexibility for, for people becoming parents and parental leave for both parents and all of that sort of stuff which uh, which is necessary for a middle-aged person. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I, it becomes much more of a sort of personalised situation. So I don't think things, you can judge things by... You, by age or by gender, you know, I think it's more attitudinal. And I think that's the way that, that retailers have to think in terms of how they look after their staff and colleagues and also how they think about servicing their customers. But in many ways, retailers always struggle to attract people into the industry because yeah. of the nature of the industry. And uh, maybe not millennials then, but maybe Gen Z. I mean, I was with a group of Gen Z students and I was amazed at every other student had their own e-commerce business they were launching. And so Absolutely. why would a Gen Z 
sort of graduate think to go into a big corporation, retail or otherwise? I mean, what uh, you know, is that, that's a huge worry for, for business, isn't it? Mm. Kate? To be honest, I don't. I teach those students. I teach both at the undergraduate level and, and um, you know, at the master's and the MBA level. And they don't. Majority of them either already have their businesses running or they're setting up their own uh, because they don't feel there's enough agency as well in bigger businesses. There's also, they don't feel like they can actually bring forward their own ideas a lot of the times, but they also don't feel like they can fail. Um, and without certain risk-taking and certain failure, we are not able to get anywhere. But also without what you very beautifully said, Peter, is providing some of those basics that make us feel safe, make us feel appreciated as human beings, make us feel, feel seen, uh, but equally providing us inspiration and allowing us that inspiration. It's almost two sides of the coin, because if we don't have some of those basic convenient things provided uh, in whatever place of work we have and in whatever form we decide to work, wherever we decide to work, um, it doesn't matter sometimes where is it, a cafe, is it an office or anything like that. It's more how much we are seen, how much we are appreciated, how much agency we have, how much we are trusted, but also how much inspiration and, as I bluntly like to call it kicks in the butt uh, sometimes we need to get you know um, because yes processes are necessary yes boxes uh, are necessary but equally lots of freedom and lots of inspiration is necessary to come up with things that as you said Julie are truly meaningful to people and make a difference in their mm. lives because that's what retail is really mm. about we are everywhere we are impacting on people's lives whether we want it or not. So let's take an opportunity and responsibility for that and let's maybe create a slightly better word. Julie? Mm, I yeah. think that's right. I think if brands become more as mentors, I think there's opportunity for that. And then this, makes, this will make people proud to actually be part of that brand. And, you know, if brands become mentors, you know, staff and colleagues become... Um, partners rather than, you know, service people. I think that makes a big difference and has them feel that they're making a big difference. And you've got brands like, you say, Lululemon, but brands like um, Rafa, which is an old Absolutely. used example, but, you know, that is a, a classic example of, you know, it's still, still a great example, isn't it? And I think so those things that brands can do to make themselves, to make people proud of them and for them to have meaning in the world is really important. Coming up in part two of this special Retail 2030 podcast series, we explore how customer behaviour will shape the future of physical retail space. The nature of transaction has changed uh, immeasurably uh, over, over the last 10 years and, and will continue to, to, to evolve. Now, I think the direction that's going is uh, actually in a more human way. You know, we are starting to engage uh, and design for customers and consumers at that level uh, and I think there is um, a certain amount of leveling which uh, what we're learning now about how to deal with humans how to deal with uh, emotional connections will start to translate uh, right across retail. It's not about whether someone transacts there or then um, and actually I think it needs to be a shift in attitude of retailers too. Um, you know, I think that's quite exciting. It makes much more vibrant spaces. I think you can definitely argue that. I keep reading in terms of the research, there's quite a difference between millennials and Gen Z in terms of their shopping habits, their likes and needs, and uh, summarising, if I've got this right, uh, Gen Z appears to like a physical experience of going to a store, I mean, but they will use it integrated with the digital experience. I mean, I'm, yeah, I know WGSN true. have yes, looked at yes, this. we've um, done a lot of work on this. Yeah. Um, but I think that, and I, I just had some notes here, which is just like, if you start to think about, if we start to go back to sort of the 2030 narrative, um, millennials, the oldest millennials will be 49, the oldest Gen Z will be 33, 34, and then we've got the alphas which is the next generation, they'll be sort of turning 19. And so I think that there's like, there's an interesting overlay between life's 
stage and then obviously consumer demographic attitudes. And so if we start to think about, okay, well, Generation Z, they'll be 33, 34 years old. We've got this narrative around them and this understanding that they do tend to like um, physical retail spaces, but then they also really like third spaces as well. And I think that that's something that we really need to be talking about um, around this generation, around, you know, those sort of gaming spaces and spaces that are, you know, you can consume virtual goods in, which will become increasingly important for th- uh, 2030. So I, it, it's an interesting kind of uh, tension that's playing out, which is that they do like to, to purchase. They do expect a very seamless, seamless retail experience. But then they're also going to be going into these other spaces that we haven't really fully figured out as retail businesses how we're going to operate in them. And we're sort of seeing some really interesting sort of emergent companies um, that are creating digital clothing for people's uh, virtual avatars. You know, you can get uh, buy an outfit for your Instagram avatar. I think that's like 30 quid and that will make an outfit that's completely virtual and you can post that on your Instagram. So, you know, and I think that the other thing that we haven't yet touched upon is really the big challenge for 2030, which is around the the climate issue. You know, what are we going to be consuming in 2030 around, you know, if we start to think about this 1.5 degree issue that we've got, you know, are we even going to be shopping? (laughs) You know, and I think that that's, that's an interesting and maybe it's slightly too provocative, but are we going to be shopping in 2030? Because are we, what's the world going to look like from a climate perspective as well? It's beautifully said when, um, often when you sort of look at it and the solutions that are actually coming up um, in terms of the climate and the future are very much of an old solutions. And where I'm starting to see that biggest shift is that Mm. currency is not money as it Mm. not used to be before. Currency is an exchange of goods, services, knowledge, abilities. And that's where, for example, the very old-fashioned by now, but co-creation, you know, that's also a currency. Um, Why, you know, why do we have to actually have something physical? What we do need to fulfill is our basic motivations and drivers that Mm. are fulfilled by (laughs) consumption. But does it have to be materialized? Mm -hmm. Or maybe there is a different way. Do Mm -hmm. we have to pay by money? Or can we pay in some other way? Um, You know, do we even have to, you know, consume and create? Uh, or can we make it ourselves um, through the help and curation of brands, obviously? Yeah, but not necessarily, you know, to produce all the stuff that we're producing and then burn it. Yes. And lots of other things like that. You beautifully said about virtual um, consumption. We're going to, you know, to live some of our desires through that. And as much as I do very much understand uh, focusing on generations, because that's the natural way in which we're trying to control what we need to control, basic motivations and drivers of human beings don't come from the uh, generation. They come partly from the life stage, as you said, but more importantly through what particular person was raised in, the circumstances they were raised in, um, because they might be 20 years old, but then you compare a 20-year-old from UK to a 20-year-old, you know, in a poor country in Asia or in Africa, they... They have different needs, and but still the basic motivations and drivers that, you know, that run their consumption are there. You know, their experience might be drinking a bottle of Coke, and that's amazing. Mm. For us, we just, you know, we demand this huge, big virtual experience of some kind of weird word and whatever else, or co-creating our own outfit or whatever else. It's the same driver, just manifestation of it is yes. slightly different and will certainly come through a little bit more collaborative uh, attitude from everyone. Julie. It's interesting, isn't it? Because then KPIs become less financial <laughs> and more about the feel-good factor. So there's yeah. a whole different set of KPIs for businesses that, that, that will you know, emerge. Yeah. Or are emerging, actually. Kate. Yeah, precisely. And it's this kind of shift of, um, you know... Okay, is there a money or is there resources that we're going to get? And how those resources look like? Is it a knowledge or is it simply loyalty or is it social currency that someone is spreading Mm -hmm. the word around this and we don't have to pay millions of Mm. pounds for an advertising and so on and so on. We're all going to be fabulous, aren't um, we? (laughs) Peter, you touched on... The next generation, yes. which uh, oh, are called the alphas, but um, Julia, I don't know. Also, your thoughts on this? Um, I take your point that you know we're not 
we don't change that much. It's our circumstances, external circumstances. But the alphas, kind of, again, what I'm reading and hearing and, and talking to friends that have alphas, <laughs> they're really quite different again, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, if you start to think about the things that are going to be impacting their lives, it's climate, uh, immersive technologies, um, you know, an expectation that their needs and desires will be fulfilled, assuming that climate doesn't, you know, change what we're able to buy and purchase. Um, Data-driven, um, you know, futures where we've got, you know, predictive and like analytics where everyone will be getting what they want before they even know they want it, you know, and it's all that sort of stuff where potentially, I mean, if we're talking 2030, I mean, that this is mm. the sort of stuff that we're working towards. I mean, we're looking at personalization at the moment that sort of understands what you're going to want next. Well, the next thing is going to be around fulfilling those desires before you even know that you want them. And so you start to think about what their expectations will be around that. And it sort of gets to be, or you start to think about what the backlash against those sorts of things will be. Because if you think about alphas, They've been, their parents have been collecting data on them since before they were born. They've been Instagramming, documenting everything that they do. So is there going to be a point where they go, okay, well, privacy doesn't matter for me because everything's out there already? Or are they going to flip and then go, oh, okay, actually privacy is going to be hugely important to me and I'm going to lock everything down. And so that's sort of like the conversations that we're sort of having. And then also around the future of work and what that's going to look like for these guys and then what their purchasing power will be as well off the back of that. So yeah. Yeah. it's an interesting yeah, situation absolutely. to be having Julie, Julie, any thoughts on this alpha generation? Yeah, no, that, I mean, I think that's, it's so true. It could go one way or it, they could lock down and just, you know, just think, no, actually, um, you know, and then you enter into a whole new cycle of privacy. I do think that um, things like um, AR and things like that are actually also going to be um, influential on the alphas. I think there's something about that's happening now about an escape from reality, if you like. And, and obviously that, then becomes reality. So this whole virtual world thing is is an interesting um, uh, beginning, I think, which is going to affect Alpha's behaviour. Um, and, um, you know, I think that, you know, I think retailers can provide escapism. They are doing at the moment. But how much, you know, what, what, what effect is this going to have in mm -hmm. 30 years' time? Kate? Yeah. Uh, it's beautifully sad because whenever we're faced with any kind of issue, we either completely avoid it and run away or yeah. we actually face it. So we're going to obviously mm. see a lot more sort of indulgence and thinking, you know, the world isn't falling apart uh, and actually overconsumption. Uh, mm. But on another hand, we're going to see lots, you know, lots more people that saying, no, let's face it, let's be activists, uh, mm -hmm. you know, through the way we're consuming. So we kind of, you know, which one you're going to serve and how you're going to serve, that's up to you as a brand. But those are some basic kind of psychological responses that are going to happen and how you're going to then deliver it and how you're going to face the other group telling you off. Yeah. Then that's a different story. <laughs> so uh, drawing our discussion to a conclusion, that's a long uh, one, one last uh, question really. And I don't know if you can give uh, your quick thoughts, your your um, your message really to, to retailers and thinking about uh, today's generation and, and I think the discussion has mostly been around millennials and uh, and Gen Z what would be your advice to to retailers now um, thinking about serving those customers today but looking to the future what are the the key things Kate I'm suspecting you've got a clear message there I can see it <laughs> for me it's always try to look at the human holistically it's not a generation, it's not an age, it's not where they're from, it's not what they're facing. It's firstly look at the real basic design of a human being. What are the basic things that don't change, it doesn't matter where we're from or how old we are. And then start slowly overlaying any of those differences, whether that's age, whether that's culture, whether that's circumstances. Because when you really deliver those basics first, uh, that's already a very effective and winning experience. And then you can just, you know, put some bells and whistles on top of it through the differences. Um, that's really as simple as that. Okay, mm. thanks. Julie? Um, I would say listen to people, read, listen, look, learn, think about what they're doing and really think about, respond. When you think about people, don't they want to use their time productively. That's the most important thing, they really do. So help com customers spend time as they want to. Listen, flex, be flexible. 
Time well spent, isn't it? Time well spent. Yeah. Um, for me, I think it's about uh, acting with humanity and and thinking about the customer with empathy and really trying to understand what they're scared of and what they're aspiring to. And I think the, the f as well, climate, I think that, you know, the climate uh, crisis is going to be so important and it's going to filter into every decision that the customer is going to be making into the future. Yeah. yeah. Mm. No, that's great. I think summarising, we're not algorithms, we are human beings. And yes. so that you put that across really well. And so thank you, uh, Julie, Peter and Kate, for the great discussion. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank, thank you. you. Enjoyed this special series of episodes from the Retail Exchange. As regular listeners to our podcast will know, the Retail Exchange is committed to throwing the spotlight on key issues affecting the industry opening the door to knowledge and insight that will help retailers and brands on their journey to retail success. Our accompanying Retail 2030 Futures Report takes a deeper dive into the issues covered and is available to download this week. Visit theretailexchange.co.uk for your free copy. Welcome back to this special episode of The Retail Exchange, exploring the future of retail in the decade ahead. I'm your guest host, Ian McGarrigal, Chair of the World Retail Congress. To continue our discussion on how societal trends and changing customer behaviour will shape the future of retail, I'm delighted to now be joined by Catherine Malak, Head of Customer Experience for Hammerson, James Brakes, Associate Director of Design at RPA Group, and Tina Emerson, Partner at ASF Development. Catherine, James and Tina, welcome. To kick us off, really just, I guess, really thinking about where we are today, we're in a world that is being transformed by um, dig digital technologies, by the growth of, uh, of online, and it is, uh, quite frankly, playing havoc with <laughs> the retail <laughs> landscape as we've always known it. Yeah. Um, the sort of physical space, whether it's uh, a village, a town, a city, uh, edge of town, um, shopping mall in the city or edge of town. And I guess no one really knows where that's going to play out, how that's going to play out. But let's have a go at that. <laughs> um, maybe, uh, Catherine, I guess you're right in the middle of uh, <laughs> this. I'm going to pick on you first. What's, what's your view on uh, where we are with uh, um, sort of the balance of retail in this, yeah. uh, uh, in this current landscape? I mean, it's definitely a challenging time for retail and, and we'd uh, be kind of crazy not to recognise that. Um, but actually, I think we go through lots of these shifts and, you know, we're very optimistic, actually, in the future of retail. Um, what we're, though, seeing is a massive change in consumer buying behaviour and, and how they want to spend their time. Um, and actually, I think, you know, the challenge for businesses is how they're responding to that and how quickly they can respond to, to kind of change their, their model. That includes us as venues, and I, I use that term, not shopping centres, if you uh, notice, because actually we massively are starting to really think about how do we change the offer within those venues? How do we ensure that, you know, we're creating destinations that people want to come to um, and they want to come for more than just shopping, you know, and that's the kind of key. So, you know, retail is definitely an important element for us and, and that won't change, but but absolutely we need to think beyond pure retail. People want experiences, um, you know, so they want to come, they want to spend time with their family, their friends, um, you know, they'll eat while they're there, they want to partake in leisure, they'll expect to be entertained while they're there. And, you know, that's a massive challenge in our industry to kind of quickly be able to respond to that. Um, and I think, you know, it, but it's exciting because it creates a lot of opportunity for us to potentially revisit how space works within our venues um so you know you'll see a lot of change happening uh, you know i suspect over um you know the coming years and i definitely think the term shopping center will probably go with that um uh, or certainly from you know from uh, within yeah. our case yeah and that sort of paints an exciting picture of how retail will change but i'm wondering how hamstrung is the structure of retail today? I mean, because of, I guess, the cost-based, the structure. I mean, we see that with legacy retailers with lots of stores in their portfolios, paying rent, yeah. long-term leases, etc. I mean, there's there's a lot to sort out and work out to, to affect that change, I guess. There is, and that that's definitely having a big impact on just some simple things like lease lengths is a you know, really good example where, you know, Five, ten years ago, you know, the average lease was, you know, 15 years, you know, and potentially longer. Um, you know, we're having to very quickly respond to that and offer a lot more flexibility. So, you know, we're developing models that allow retailers to pop up and be there for a week, you know, two weeks, you know, 
six months. Um, and actually, we've got to provide that flexibility because I don't think we can expect, you know, in, in the modern day, you know, a retailer to, to um, you know, take a 20 plus year lease. So um, I think that's one one big structural change that's it's going to happen. Um, and I think, you know, the other side is the attribution of, of sales and, and actually better understanding the benefit of spaces. And obviously, um, you know, one of the challenges is that we see physical space as where a transaction happens and it's measured on that transaction. Now, I think we all know that actually customers don't think that way. When they're in a physical space, they're interacting with a brand. Whether they choose to purchase there on then or whether they go home and have a further browse, buy something, you know, try it, um, um, you know, think about it, go back in. You know, it's a complicated process now and, and it's certainly not a kind of linear piece. And I think one of the biggest issues is that at the moment, the way retailers measure kind of success and performance doesn't reflect that. So we would argue, you know, a, a lot of the space within our venues is, is as much a kind of marketing piece or showrooming or, you know, as it is about a transactional sale. And I, I think that's a massive challenge for retailers because that's really hard to measure. That's where I think technology is really interesting um, because I think it will start to solve some of that. And it's where I think the digital retailers have a big benefit because, you know, they fully can track and understand everything. You know, they can track conversion down, they can track clicks. You know, what excites me is getting to a point where we can start to do that in a physical space and really understand the value that, that that's bringing. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think we're going to see a lot of change. I think we're going to see technology really help those retailers improve, improve their model. Um, because, you know, even we would argue it's not right to have 600, 700, 800 stores. You know, that's not sustainable. You want stores in the right location. Obviously, I think Hammerson has those locations. You know, we've got big city centre kind of destinations. Um, and I think, you know, that's the thing that you'll see is retailers start to better understand, you know, where they get value, um, where they need to be, where their customer is. Yeah, yeah. So, Tina, do you have a view on what consumers uh, are wanting in this era of change in terms of uh, how they want to shop, where they want to shop? It's just interesting listening to the previous podcast and, and to Catherine's contribution. Um, one of the things that strikes me is that um, what we're doing is potentially talking about retail for the middle class, if, it, if I can use that term, but uh, people that have disposable income. I think that we it still are alienating people who have to shop, if that's, the, again, the correct term, but we're not providing any services for them. And I think that going forward um, in a, a more, hopefully more compassionate, more collaborative, more inclusive society, I think that we've got to start as retailers. And, and, and I come from the, the side of looking at the uh, employees, the con uh, contributors within store um, as, a, as a learning and development consultant. Um, for me, it's, a, it's about working out how we can include other people within that retail experience. We have to really consider this as a much more holistic approach to retail as opposed to this group of people who are currently catering for in, 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 in large venues I think that we've got to look to the smaller retailer, the more concept retailer, the, the all-inclusive retailer, the retailer that provides an experience. So I'm not sure what the solution is. I'm probably for, more full of curiosity and questions than I am of answers. So is it almost redefining the space because there is an excess of space where retail traditionally sat? And yeah. I know there's talk of um, you know repurposing town centres and yeah. bringing closer to the community, I guess, and mixing. I mean, yeah. so, I mean James, I don't know if you want to sort of uh, jump in with your thoughts because you're really at the heart of creating yeah, spaces. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, I think uh, to, to Catherine's point, the, the nature of transaction has changed uh, immeasurably uh, over over the last 10 years and, and will continue to, to, to evolve. Now, I think the direction that's going is uh, actually in a more human way. You know, we are starting to engage uh, and design for customers and consumers at that level. Uh, and I think there is um, a certain amount of levelling, which uh, what we're learning now about how to deal with humans, how to deal with uh, emotional connections, will start to translate uh, right across retail. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it translates into 
at third world and, and, and second world situations. Um, but um, uh, that's at the heart of it, that human design is, is really what we're looking to, to, to tackle in these spaces. As far as actually starting to deal with physical spaces, um, uh, you know, it's great to hear that uh, shopping centres are now becoming venues. <laughs> you know, there is that entertainment. We need that, that sort of chameleon uh, approach to to how we deal with physical spaces. Um, we're still using language that's developed over the last sort of five or ten years. We're still talking about pop-up. We're still talking about multi or omni channels. We're st- all these things are, are still relevant, um, but um, you see them in their version 2.0 now, and they will continue to be 3.0, 4.0. Um, and as long as we're embracing that evolution, uh, um, then then I think we're going to make those those big steps into to actually creating meaningful spaces. Still to come on this special episode of the Retail Exchange podcast. I think in the next 10 years, probably those perceptions and barriers will almost disintegrate. You know, we've got Generation Z who are now becoming... Uh, or, or really driving that multiculturalism. They're really starting to break down those those barriers of, of gender and ideas about gender as well. So that sort of disintegration, I think, is, is necessarily going to start to blur those physical boundaries as well. I just wonder about the strategy for 2030. Um, shops that open still nine till five or nine till six. I mean, what's that about? I've got a... A, a Gen Z and I've got a millennial, I've got two children and they, they don't shop like that. So Catherine, come back to, again, building on that and uh, Tina's point there about rethinking yeah. our towns and city centres and, you know, the retail should fit within a, a, a different ecosystem, I guess, yeah. which is closer to the community. I definitely think the community point is brilliant and, and really interesting and something, you know, we are really trying to um, ensure that, you know, we develop spaces that can be owned by the community and used by the community. So, you know, one of the big changes is us starting to think about placemaking and public realm and spaces that are free for anyone to use um, and then providing facilities and services that, you know, support people, um, whether they're there to shop or not, because we definitely, you know, I don't, and I, I you know, I, I'm head of customer experience at Amazon. I, we don't think like that. You know, we actually think we need usable spaces. And actually, if you take my point around, you know, some of the value of space is around the brand piece and just interacting with brands. It's not about whether someone transacts there or then. Um, and actually, I think it needs to be a shift in attitude of retailers too. Um, you know, I think that's quite exciting. It makes much more vibrant spaces. I think you can definitely argue that. And, you know, when you start to then think about other community uses and should we have healthcare, a dentist, you know, dry cleaners. And I think this is the same challenge for high streets of actually creating those services that are, you know, useful for people and, you know, and actually really thinking about what people need and and what's going to, you know, create a, a really vibrant, attractive destination. So, you know, it's where, um, again, I'm quite excited around actually some of this change, I think, will be positive and will create much mm-hmm. better spaces for people, ultimately. Um, you know, and uh, that's pretty exciting, um, yeah. albeit painful right now. <laughs> I mean, the as again, going back to the, uh, the shakeout that's happening in physical space, uh, as always, you know, the Londons, the Manchesters, the Edinburghs, will always still do okay because they're big cities, etc. But you hear a lot about, you know, secondary towns that are um, strugg- really struggling and uh, with lots of store closures. Thinking ahead to 2030 as we are with uh, this, these uh, podcasts, what, what, what do you think needs to be done? What can be done uh, with these secondary towns? Is it, is it what we've just touched on there and trying to find new ways of connecting with the local communities and maybe involving the communities? I think there are some examples of towns sort of taking over spaces and uh, um, you know, trying to make them connect again. James? I think in the next 10 years, probably those perceptions and barriers will almost disintegrate. You know, we've got Generation Z who are now becoming 
uh, or, or really driving that multiculturalism. They're really starting to break down those those barriers of of gender and ideas about gender as well. So that sort of disintegration, I think, is is necessarily going to start to blur those physical boundaries as well. So I think those ideas will start to make their way outwards naturally, sort of quite a organic sort of way. Um, as far as physical spaces yeah, go. Yeah. yeah. Tina, do you have a view on these secondary towns or what we can do? Yes, um, I live in one um, and um, I, I see the demise of it. Um, we have very few shopping experiences. We have lots of um, different ways of shopping now. We have an enormous amount of coffee shops and cafes and very similar things. But I just wonder about the strategy for 2030. Um, Shops that open still nine till five or nine till six. I mean, what's that about? I've got a, a, a Gen Z and I've got a millennial. I've got two children and they, they don't shop like that. They're, you know, they're, it's quite, all quite laughable to them. I don't think they've been into the town centre um, to shop for, for a number of years. Um, we're not catering for them and they are, they are the consumers of the future. We're not thinking about them now at all. But equally, on the other end of the spectrum, I have a mother in her mid-80s who um, also finds it very difficult to get around, get into certain shops and to, to shop within those shops. I'm not sure that we're catering for them either. Um, so for me, it's, about, it's a strategy for 2030 about wh where, do, where, do, where does the whole human across the whole spectrum fit in and what did those experiences need to be. But equally, I think that we have to look to the, um, the, the colleagues, the individual contributors, the people that work within that environment and start to think about how on earth are we going to involve them are we listening to them about what, what their consumers need, what they see the future as being? Because they in, they, in turn, will need to be engaged and trained and their knowledge expanded. So I think there's a massive investment in the people. And I think that you made an interesting point earlier about traditionally, um, it, maybe retail, uh, along with catering, has been considered a, an option for those that are more vocational. Um, rather than intellectual in their pursuits. Um, but I think that we've got to start celebrating some of their ideas and some of their thoughts and engaging them about what the future can be um, for retail and how they can be part of that. Coming up in the next episode of our special Retail 2030 podcast series, we explore how sustainability will shape the retail experience of tomorrow. In fashion in particular, a lot of people don't realise it. it is one of the biggest polluters on the planet. I mean, it accounts for 10% of the world's CO2 emissions, 20% of the world's wastewater production. The amount of water that is used to produce one cotton T-shirt uh, is enough drinking water for one adult for one year. So we have to do something. We have to change consumer perception and we have to do that by gathering the data and making it available to people so they can look at it and say, OK, I understand the difference between this brand and this brand. I'm going to choose this brand. Uh, I think some retailers are more sort of receptive to it than others, but at the end of the day, the retailer will provide what the consumer requires. James, you're in the business of creating new spaces, and they are spaces not just for um, the day after tomorrow, they're for the long term. Just wondered what other considerations you put into those projects, and, and have they changed from, say, 10 years ago when you were creating spaces? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, immeasurably. Um, really, the, the focus has, has vastly moved away from creating a flagship store, which then spawned its... Um, um, you know, it's it's fledglings across the uh, across the land. Um, what we're looking at now are uh, spaces that actually create genuine attachment with their with their customers, um, which is based in emotion. And this is really what what um, you know Catherine is saying about creating spaces that uh, truly engage, that actually have um, uh, a connection. Uh, and they support the the whole experience right the way through. Uh, we talk about frictionless retail um, in terms of making everything uh, so easy and and so quick. Um, what we tend to do is sort of stand back from that really and look 
actually where do we want the friction? Where do we actually want those touch points uh, to, to physically engage, um, to emotionally engage, uh, and then start to bring a lot of those threads into, into how we design. You know, we simply don't need 30,000 square feet of, of retail space to do that now. Um, you know, we need to look at the needs of the, the customer, the consumer, and, and work out how the brand needs to engage with them in, in, uh, at that level. Yeah. That's, that's one of our defining yeah. spaces. Let's uh, pitch ourselves forward to 2030. We've decided to go shopping. The driverless car is pulling up outside, um, taking us to our retail destination. What do we imagine and hope that destination will look like and be? Um, for me, it's breadth. So I think that um, retailers very naturally have always done depth. This is my offering. This is what I'm giving you. I think it's breadth now. This is uh, much more about width of offering, width of ideas, uh, width of accessibility. If you think currently 60% of the UK have, has got a, a mobile phone um, and my son won't go into a shop now because he can't charge it anywhere. Why haven't we got chargers, you know, in shops and things like that? He, he wants a whole experience. He's a, he's a Gen Z and he, he wants that breadth, not just this depth. This is, we sell a motorbike. No, he wants everything. So I think great. we have to create spaces that really honour that. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, Catherine? For me, it would be mixed use. So you won't have uh, locations that, have a clear-cut use, I think it will be incredibly mixed. So they will be spaces that people live, work, play. Um, I think you'll see um, public realm at the heart of that as opposed to on the peripheries. So spaces that people dwell in because it's by nature, you know, where they live, where they work, where they play. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there'll be lots of technology and I'm sure we could predict loads and some will be there and some won't. Um, but I do think you know, those experiences will be better. They probably will be more seamless and frictionless because, you know, I think technology will enable that. Um, and I think it will be greener. That's the other thing. <laughs> I hope it will be. Um, but but genuinely, I think, you know, with a lot of the change in things like transportation and clean air acts coming in, I think, you know, we hopefully have much more public, greener, nicer spaces um, that we can enjoy. Yeah, great. James? Yeah, I think... Uh, retail and entertainment will homogenize you know you'll be simply living your life um you know your needs uh will be fulfilled within within a space or within a reasonable amount of space that you can that you can navigate easily um i think uh, uh consideration to certain environmental factors will 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 come into that we'll have green spaces um yeah fresh air and and places where you can engage with your uh, neighbors so it's community well i think that's a, a great vision you all uh, paint so uh, thank you very much i said it's been a fascinating discussion we could have gone on uh, a lot lot longer so uh, tina catherine and james many thanks for being here and uh, thanks for your contribution it's great thank you thank you, thank you. If you enjoyed this special episode from the Retail Exchange, then be sure to check out the accompanying Retail 2030 Futures Report from the Retail Exchange and the World Retail Congress as we take a deeper dive into the issues covered. Visit theretailexchange.co.uk for your free copy and be sure to book your ticket for the 2020 World Retail Congress in Rome. Once again, bringing together the leaders of today's global retail industry to explore the new relevance agenda that is shaping the future of retail. Find out more by visiting worldretailcongress.com I look forward to seeing you there and thanks again for listening and goodbye for now. You've been listening to a special episode of the Retail Exchange podcast in association with World Retail Congress, brought to you by Visual Thinking and Style Psychology. Stay up to date with new podcast episodes by subscribing online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter, hashtag Retail Exchange. Thanks for listening.